Hope that you all had a blessed and a joyful Christmas that you were able to spend time with and be blessed by time with your own families, your own friends, and in worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that all of you, as you are planning your New Year's Eve celebrations, or lack thereof this evening, that you would all also be turned heart and mind towards our God, who have has great things in store for us in the year to come, things that we likely wouldn't believe if we were told them now. But uh, I also wanted to say thank you on behalf of my family for the opportunity for Sherry and I to get away to go out and spend some time at Sherry's family's farm this year for Christmas. And that is largely thanks to my elders as well as our pastor Jim, who is willing to take the pulpit here on Christmas Eve morning. And he is now off and down with his family, is my understanding, in Calgary. So this morning we are coming to Genesis chapter 5. And this is actually kind of a part two to the message that we heard on December 17th, which was 417 and following. But to catch us up to speed, that last passage kind of gave us this compounding wickedness of the line of Cain, and it culminates in the seventh generation from Adam through Cain in a man named Lamech. And this man was Scripture's first recorded bigamist, having two wives, and he was a man who boasted to his wives about the fact that he murdered a young man for the offense of wounding him or striking him. And this wicked trajectory even overshadows the fact that Lamech's sons became pioneers of things like animal husbandry and music and metallurgy. And all of this wickedness shows itself to be a continuation and an expansion of the very same thing that pulled Cain away from God in the first place. An unwillingness to give God the glory that he is due. The heart of Cain's wicked lineage in Scripture is a refusal to render unto God the worship that he is due. So today we're going to refresh on the final words of the last account, and then we will get into the story of the line of Seth. But in this last few words of the last account, it, the camera shifts and turns back towards Adam and Eve. So we'll start in Genesis 4.25, and then we're going to read chapter 5 together. Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 25, and following through to chapter 5. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. 
Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 850 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Notice a change in pattern here. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is God's Word. The very first thing that we ought to notice is that throughout the account of Cain, and the generations that proceeded from him, there is a character about whom all of Scripture is written that is conspicuously absent. Not once in the line of Cain do we hear anything about God. God is not mentioned. God is not glorified. Not even in the provision of such incredible innovations as Lamech's sons had found it. Now, even as I said last time, Cain and his progeny, much like we can often be tempted to do, they managed to totally forget, or probably should I say ignore, this creator who created them to be creative. But as our eyes turn towards Seth and his family, the first thing that we hear at that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And to call upon the name of the Lord is simply to acknowledge Him and to worship Him as He deserves to be worshipped. And this stands in direct comparison to 
the refusal that we have in Cain's line to do so. And thus we enter the book of the generations of Adam. When we see this, this is essentially the Spirit-inspired title for this next section in Genesis. And we have here an interesting twist. It's a recapturing of the essence of man as he was created to be. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And this should point out to us that we are bringing back this language of and dependence upon the God who had created them within the line of Seth. And even in that short verse and a half, we have some of these most incredible and foundational truths that we've been working on even in this first four chapters of Genesis that we've looked at. We have God created man. That man is created in the very image of the Most High God who had formed all the universe. That God formed the genders, man and woman, according to his good plan and purpose. Part of that purpose is that he might bless them. And what blessing is that? We'd look at Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God blessed them. And finally, God named them man. And we should remember that if we have God naming something, to name something is to demonstrate authority over them. I would not think to try and name someone else's child. Oh, we just had a baby boy? All right, I'm going to call him Steve. No, that's not my place. I am not in authority over them, but I am, as a father, blessed to be able to name my children because I am in authority over my children and it is my blessing to do so. So God displays his authority over man by naming them. And then... Continuing in the pattern laid down by God, when Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own image, in his own likeness after his image, and named him Seth. And the language there is that Adam is now reaping that blessing of God. He now creates in his image a son who then bears forth not only his father's image, but also God's image. But lest we lose sight of the fact that this image is reproduced imperfectly, we have this caveat attached to each of these generations. And he died. Even with lives that span nearly a millennia, the ultimate end of man across all of these generations, even those from a righteous lineage such as Seth's, is the same, and he died. There are only two exceptions that we have in Scripture to that hard and fast rule. One is what we look at today, and the other is the prophet Elijah, who we are told in 2 Kings 2.11, went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And if you're matching, because this genealogy of Seth is directly compared to the one from Cain, If you're matching generation to generation, this seventh generation of Enoch matches right up with the seventh generation through Cain of Lamech. And Moses is on purpose putting these two generations right next to each other and comparing them on multiple different levels. And like 
two rivers proceeding from the same source, they go in totally different directions. The wickedness and the violence and the death, the culmination of the line of Cain comes to Lamech. The one who boasted, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. But from the line of Seth, the line that begins with that declaration that people began to call upon the name of the Lord, in that same period, it culminates in Enoch. That when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. On the one hand, you have this family line steeped in wickedness that culminates in death. Seven generations in, we have Lamech and the death that he brings. But in Enoch, we have the seventh generation, this line that culminates in one who avoids death altogether. And notice the sustained focus throughout this entire lineage. Adam and Eve, they worship God for appointing another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. In Seth and in Enoch's generation, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord, and then in Enoch, Enoch walked with God. The picture that we see developing through this line of Seth is of a sustained devotion to the worship and the glory of God, and faith resounds as a continuing theme. Even as Tim read from Hebrews 11, we're told that by faith Enoch was taken up that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and in Hebrews we have this kind of explanatory note in verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So Enoch, what he is being commended for, the reason why he was taken up to heaven, what does it mean that he walked with God? He had faith. He had faith in God. And for us, I know for me, it is our temptation to get caught up in this spectacular method of Enoch's exit from this earth. We get all wrapped up, be like, so Enoch didn't even have to die. How can I do that? I don't want to have to go through all of the heart of the, the death part. I just want to get to heaven, right? But the focus here is not on how Enoch died or didn't die. It's almost just a side note. It's like so-and-so, this many years, other kids, and he died. So-and-so, other kids, and he died. Enoch didn't die, okay, back so-and-so, and he died. And it was kind of almost a side note. But such an exit as we have from Enoch is beyond our ability to fabricate. I cannot organize it such that I don't have to die and I can just follow Enoch's pattern. We can't manufacture that. That is God's purview, and if we were to look at Scripture and how common that pattern is twice in the entire course of Scripture, we should probably not too strongly allow that to take our attention. It should 
okay, there's a change in the pattern here. What did Enoch do that he was commanded by God that he didn't even have to die? But the focus is not on the fact that he didn't have to die, but on the fact that he had faith, that he walked with God. And rather than focusing on the fact that Enoch didn't have to die, we should attempt to capture the means by which a man such as Enoch might have lived something that we are capable of doing with God's aid and capable of, with God's aid, emulating. How did Enoch live that he so pleased God? That phrase used to describe Enoch's life, he walked with God, it comes up three more times in the Old Testament, twice more outside of Genesis. We'll hear another one right away here about Noah, but once from the prophet Micah and once from the prophet Malachi. These prophets said, Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. From Malachi, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me, and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. To walk with God is to worship him rightly. It is to obey his commandments. It is to be blameless before God. Just as it is said of Noah, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. And now we know that no one has ever been truly and totally blameless before the Lord since Adam, save our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even if a man were to make it through his entire lifetime without committing a sin, Thank you to Adam and the sin that is passed down from him. None has been blameless, nor will they ever be perfectly righteous in God's sight, for through Adam all have sinned. Death has come through Adam. So no one has ever been perfectly righteous, and yet regularly throughout Scripture we are called to follow God perfectly and uprightly. From 1 Peter 1, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Our lives as those who would claim to call upon the name of the Lord, as those who would claim to be faithful to God, ought to be lives marked by a faithful pursuit of personal holiness. We ought to be faithfully pursuing a commitment to God's commands, God's laws, what he has called us to in his word. But we are not called to pursue holiness that we should earn God's approval or earn our way to heaven. We are called to holiness in obedience. For we are not justified by our works. We're not justified by our own holiness, but by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But if we claim faith, if we claim to follow Christ, 
And we do not demonstrate it by our works, and we demonstrate that we have no faith at all. Your faith will result in works. Your faith will result in obedience to the commandments of God. Or it is no true faith. And Enoch is this paragon of faith. He is this example to us. So much so that he didn't even have to die. But then, almost as a reminder that this is not going to be the norm, we have Enoch fathers Methuselah, and Methuselah is this longest ever recorded living person in Scripture. 969 years. And then his life, too, ends unceremoniously, just as all others had before him, and he died. And we continue to draw out this pattern of faithfulness. The next and last figure in this line that gets special attention is, interestingly enough, another Lamech. Not the violent one of Cain's lineage, but the father of Noah. And Again, Moses is intentionally comparing these two lineages. And what a difference we have here. From Seth's line, he declares, through the naming of his son Noah, his anticipation of and the hope and the deliverance that would come from God's hand through his son. Stark contrast with the Lamech of Cain's line with his declaration of violence. And the one from Seth's line is the only one that we have any kind of speech from. And at the naming of his son, he says, He fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. This genealogy of Seth is bookended by the promises of God found elsewhere in Scripture. On one side, we have this return to the initial days of creation. God created them. God blessed them. And on the other side, we have, the in the naming of Noah, this returning to the fall of man and the subsequent curse in 3.17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. To return to the garden, the promises, the blessings, and even the curses contained therein, this is not unintentional on Moses' part. These are all ties to this ongoing theme of persistent faith found throughout the line of Seth. So I have to ask us, ask you, why do you believe what you do? How do you believe what you do? What reason do you have, do you give, if someone were to ask you, why you call Christ your Savior? How have you moved from that general revelation where we're promised that in the world there is enough evidence that there is a God, so all of us know that there is a God even naturally, but how do you move from knowing that there is a God, lowercase g, uppercase g, some kind of God, to calling yourself a Christian? How do you come to this saving knowledge that includes an understanding of your sin, the need to be reconciled to God, God's plan of redemption through the life, death, resurrection, and glorification of Christ? 
What makes that knowledge good news? How does the resurrection of Christ have anything to do with us 2,000 years later? What is it about the gospel that has Christians looking towards the future, even so much so that there are Christians across the world, even today, who are willing to face death and face torture and face every manner of evil and wicked thing for the sake of the truth that they hold to? Where does that faith come from? First and foremost, it comes from God. We are told that faith is a gift from God, that he has replaced in his people a heart of stone with a heart of flesh that can hear and see and know and understand his promises to be true. But what are the primary means by which God has accomplished this change? How have you come to know what you have come to know about Christ? In the time of Seth and his line down to Lamech, there were no scriptures per se. They didn't have the ESV or the KJV or any other Bible version printed yet. But what they had then, we still have today in scriptures. They had the future promises of God and the past accounts of God's work and his faithfulness to his people. Remember that at this point, we are seven generations removed from the creation of the universe, so it's not like it's ancient history. And particularly for these early peoples, there is a lot of communication of the past promises and the past genealogies through word of mouth. They had these promises... And today, so many generations removed, we have thousands of years of history stretching right back to the instance of creation. And it's all recorded for us, recorded perfectly and infallibly for us in the Word. And though fallible, it's also recorded for us in many biographies of great men and women throughout church history in the post-apostolic age. By what we find in Scripture and by the example that we find throughout the church in history, we can see these future promises of God and the past accounts of God's works and His faithfulness to His people. By this we are convinced by the Spirit of God that this God that is attested to us in the 66 books of the Bible, this God has built His church over the last 2,000 years he is indeed who he claims to be, that he did create all things, that we are sinful, that he did send his son to live and die and be raised and be glorified, that he has called for himself a body of believers that is called the church, and that he will come again one day to judge the living and the dead, separating them either unto eternal life or eternal destruction. But even before the fullness of this plan was revealed, Seth and his line had no concept of Jesus. They had no concept of the substitutionary atonement at the cross. But they did have a promise. There would be a seed. 
there would be an offspring of woman, that the serpent's head would be crushed and that his heel would be bruised. There was a hope of a return to the garden, a hope of a return to God's presence where God and man might be reconciled. And what more do we celebrate at Christmas? Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. I am convinced that this account of Seth's line, especially in comparison to Cain's faithless and violent line, is to highlight not only the faith in their line, but their dependence upon God's promise of a hope and a future for his people and those who would worship him. They didn't have a whole lot of promises to hold on to, but they had the promise of a seed. They had a promise of an offspring and of the reconciliation of God and man. Theirs was not a blind faith, for they had been given promises by God and they held to them. Only a few generations before, they had seen God's dealings with the very first man and woman. Their fa- his faithfulness and kindness towards them, this ongoing lineage of faith. Seth's line depends on this memory of the promises that God had made and the ways that he had demonstrated his faith in the past and that he absolutely did deserve their trust. And brothers and sisters, if we would call upon the Lord, if we would walk with the Lord even as Enoch did, then we must be a people of faith. We must be a people who hold to the truth that is found in Scripture. And faith is a gift from God. But the way that we work out that faith and the strength of our faith is dependent upon us knowing and pursuing God. That's part of the reason why it's so important that we gather together here on Lord's Day that we can learn and know who God is. If it was just a matter of getting you through the door, why would we bother to have church? We could all go and do our revival tent meetings, preach the gospel, get people to pray the prayer, say the name of Jesus, and say, all right, you're in, let's go on to the next one and leave them in the dust. But the reason why we gather here on Sundays is that we might come to know this God that we have proclaimed, this God that we have come to faith in. At some point, God has, if we are truly Christians, at some point, God has enlightened our eyes and our hearts to say, this is him. This is the God that I have been able to see in creation since the day I was born. At some point, we have come to that place, but that's not where our faith journey stops. We get there, and then we come to church Sunday after Sunday. We study God's word day in and day out. We look at the accounts of God's faithfulness in biographies and history of the church. We look at all of these things and go, God has done amazing things. This is the God that we worship. And the God that we understood at the moment where we came to faith, we understood this much. And then we have the whole rest of our lives to study and understand and to grow in our knowledge of him, and we have that opportunity. And if we stay at this much, how can we worship God rightly if all we have is this much? We absolutely can. We absolutely can worship him when we have this much, but when we have this much, it should become this much. 
and then it should become this much. We should be growing in our knowledge. So if you've just come to faith and you're just learning about who God is, great. This much is enough because that's what God has taught you of himself. But if you're 10 years in and you're still at this much, maybe you should look at spending some time in the Word. Maybe you should spend more time listening to what God has revealed of himself. If we claim to be people of faith, faith in who? Do we know him? Can we worship him rightly if we just stick with the tiny little bit and have no thirst for anything more? So continue to pursue God. Continue, as Enoch did, to walk with God. I am a little bit jealous. I've said before that I'm not overly impressed with these accounts of the thousand-year lifespans. I don't want to live to be a thousand years old. I look forward to getting to go and be with Jesus. But I got to think, Enoch, 365 years, he walked with God. Imagine what it would have been like to talk to Enoch, a man who had walked with God for 365 years. And we ought to be walking with God. We ought to be growing in our knowledge of him. We ought to be immersed in his revelation that he has given us in Scripture. We ought to know him that we might walk with him and that we might glorify him. Adam and Eve, Father Seth, and Seth carries Adam's image with him. And every man and every woman that has come from the line of Adam and Eve, so every man and woman that has ever existed, carry with us the image of God. And we ought to be proclaiming who that God is by the way we act, by the way we live, by the things we're interested in, by the things that we pursue. If we would walk with the Lord, then we must be a people of faith. These genealogies are storehouses for these memories of a people. And the point in this genealogy of Seth, if we would read it today, or even in Moses' day, was to be spurred to call upon the Lord, to walk with the Lord, to depend upon the promises and the revelation of the Lord, even as this righteous lineage did. These people are being held up by Moses as an example. Be like, in those days, these people called upon the name of the Lord. Now you do it too. And we ought to be called to the exact same today. Enoch walked with the Lord so well that he was carried off into glory. I don't anticipate too many of us are going to be carried off into glory because of our walk with the Lord. Not because I doubt your walk with the Lord, just because that's not been God's pattern. But I do anticipate that there are many here, and I have been so encouraged by the faith that I have seen in Elk Point Baptist Church, that Many, many people will be encouraged by the walk of faith of the person they know from Elk Point Baptist Church. That many of us here, myself included, would be encouraged by the walks of faith that we see around us. I may be the pastor here, but I'm only 32 years old. 
there are plenty of people here in Elk Farm Baptist Church that have been walking with the Lord for significantly longer than I've been alive. They came to faith 50 years ago and 60 years ago, and I'm learning from them day in and day out, and it's a blessing for me to be able to look around and say, there are people who have been walking with the Lord longer than I've been alive. I can learn from them. So we ought to also seek to be that example for future generations. There is this concept of this generational faith coming down through Cain's line and Seth's line where one line just utterly over and over and over again rejects God and refuses to worship him rightly. And then on the other hand, we have this line that culminates in a guy who doesn't even have to die and then the father of Noah who was blameless in his generation. So we ought to be living lives that can be examples for the brothers and sisters in our faith communities and in the community of Elk Point and Bonneville and St. Paul and Cold Lake and Vermilion and all of these surrounding communities that we hail from. We don't come in here just that we might get our fill and go home and fritter it away in our houses. We come to be equipped for the work of the ministry that goes on out in the world and through Oak Point Baptist Church. It's my prayer that the Spirit would ignite a spark in you this morning, that you would desire to walk with God, that you would live in relationship with and obedience to Him, even as Enoch did, that you would call upon the name of the Lord and worship Him as He has called us to worship Him. And that God might use the promises and the accounts of Scripture even as we're re-examining this book of Genesis. And that's why we're in this book of Genesis. We're going back to the basics, to these foundational truths that we might be encouraged in our walk and in our faith. That we would be driven to wholeheartedly follow Him. And what's more appropriate how many of us are going to have some form of New Year's resolution, whether that's eating less cookies or whatever it might be. That's going to be one of mine. I'm going to try and not eat all of our leftover Christmas cookies. But we're going to have these New Year's resolutions. Okay, this year I'm going to do. Why not tag one more on there? One that you're actually going to follow through with. That this year you're going to be committed and driven to walk with God, to use your gifts for God's glory in his church and in the world. That you would be a person of faith, that your faith would grow deeper and stronger this year, and that you wouldn't be found on December 31st, 2024, with the same faith that you have today. Because the faith that you have today is the faith that God has brought you to today but it should not be the same faith that you have a year from now. Your faith should grow in the next year. And that doesn't happen by accident. Take the time. Spend time in the Word. Learn from these resources, these brothers and sisters that you have here, the faithful people that you have in your family, and be a part of the church. Don't just come to church. We are blessed to have God's revelation to us. So as the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song, I'd ask
ask that you would join with me in prayer that God would do this work within us. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the examples that you have given us throughout Scripture. For the examples that you have given us throughout church history. For the positive examples that you've given us in our own family. Maybe it's a parent or a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt or even those who have preached the gospel to us when we were in families that didn't know you. Lord, however it is or whatever might have caused us to come to know you, we thank you for calling us to yourself and for that little bit of faith, that gift of faith that you've given us. And we pray that over this year to come that that faith would grow. That we might take and use and steward well the gift of faith that you have given us. That we wouldn't just bury it in the sand, that we would see it grow and see it return with interest a year from now. But Lord, we know that we are not promised a year from now, we're not promised a minute from now. So let us not put off using our faith and using it well to a day that is better suited. Let us use every moment that you have given us to walk with you, to pursue you, to grow in our knowledge and our likeness to your Son, Jesus Christ. That we might glorify you and that when your Son does come again, whether we have died or whether we are still alive, that when he does come again, that we might be found to have used our gifts well and that we might be commended and that we might be accepted into your people knowing that that acceptance hinges not on our good works, but upon the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that our works would have demonstrated that we do have true faith, O oh Lord. So Lord, we thank you. We praise you and we glorify you. We thank you for this year that is behind us, the highs and lows, the joys and pains, O oh Lord, for you are God and you are good and you have sovereignly planned all of these things, whether or not we understand them. We pray that you would give us strength for the year ahead, that we might glorify you then, and that we might grow in our walk with you. Praise these things in Jesus' name.